I've got my ember, I've got my Spurgeon quote, and we are ready to roll straight in to the next episode of Chief. And what's up, everybody? Hope everybody's having a good week. Uh, today, I want to talk about a quote that I came across um, in a Spurgeon sermon a few days ago. Actually, it was uh, Friday of last week, so what is that today? Uh, a few days. I've been ruminating on this quote from Spurgeon where he talked about how the life of the Christian is our opportunity to rehearse for heaven. And I thought that was an interesting uh, concept, that we look at our life as being a rehearsal for heaven. Um, I've read a couple other quotes by Spurgeon over the years as it relates to singing, um, there's one where he says that praise is the rehearsal of our eternal song. Um, he has another one where he says, um, let's see, for once more, it seems to me that public worship on earth is a rehearsal for the service of heaven. We shall sing together there, brothers and sisters, not solos, Um, so interesting to me that he is, and I've heard this concept before that he talks about praise and worship and singing as being a rehearsal for heaven. Um, but I hadn't read a quote where he, where he said that he referenced living, living is a rehearsal. And that got me thinking about rehearsals. Um, so I, there's a couple of rehearsals that I've been pondering and trying to figure out how they apply to this concept of, of our living on earth being a rehearsal for heaven. Um, and I think there's a handful of rehearsals that we're all familiar with. And I think we can, by examining them, uh, look at them and, and see how accurate they are in, I think, embodying this concept that our life is a rehearsal for heaven. And I think a couple of them are really bad examples. Um, and I think that there's, I've, I've locked in on one that I think is probably a good example. Um, so buckle in, get your coffee uh, if you're driving to work. Uh, I've actually been receiving emails that people are uh, listening to this in, in rush hour, so on their way to work or on the way home. Um, so I guess if you're on your way home, you're probably not drinking coffee unless you're addicted like I am um, and you end up drinking multiple French presses a day. In fact, yesterday I, I was like, man, I think I need to tap the brakes on this coffee stuff because my heart started feeling like it was over revving. And I was like, all right, maybe I should slow down on the coffee a little bit too much. Caffeine, not good for the old ticker. Um, but if you're listening on the way to work early in the morning and you need that boost, um, just double fist it, chug it, get that 44 ounce uh, refillable mug and just go to town. Um, but yeah, I can't speak highly enough of this Ember mug. It's awesome. It keeps your coffee blazing hot as you sip through it. The only thing that I don't like about it is it only holds eight ounces, which is pretty light. Um, so I end up keeping the French press next to it. And then when I drink halfway through the cup, I fill it back up. Um, and then it just keeps the whole cup hot. So I drink half, fill it up, drink half, fill it up. And the whole thing just remains piping hot. doesn't matter if it takes me 30 minutes to drink it or four hours. It's hot the entire time. As long as it's sitting on the, electro, uh, the charging coaster. Because the battery life 
to keep a, a beverage 146 degrees Fahrenheit is, uh, it, it drains the battery pretty quick. But you also get an app on your phone, which is pretty cool. Um, Ember, I can open up my Ember app right now. And I can say enable Bluetooth. Yep. Anyway, it's got this little slider. You can slide um, to go from 146 max temp down to the 120s, depending on your preference. And then you can also change the little color on the glowing, the glowing color light, which is kind of fun. Oh, technology, making coffee drinkers even more pretentious. Uh, but anyway, so the first concept, the first rehearsal concept that I think we're familiar with um, is the concept of a, a wedding rehearsal. Uh, most of us have either been at our own wedding rehearsal or we have attended, at the very least, the wedding rehearsal of a friend or a sibling. Um, and I think this is the first concept that came to my mind in regards to rehearsals, but I also think it's one of the ones that's not useful in looking at our lives as being a rehearsal to, for heaven. And you go, well, why not? Marriage is like the number, one of the, the most memorable events, if not the most memorable uh, event, human interaction event in our lives. Um, but I don't think the wedding rehearsal is a good example for us to consider our lives being a rehearsal for heaven because a couple of reasons. One, it's really short-lived. Um, I mean, you show up at a, you know, 5 p.m. on the Friday before the wedding and you're done by 6.30. And if it goes five minutes longer, everybody's just getting really antsy and agitated and they're like, oh, when are we going to go to the dinner so we can grub? I'm starving. Um, so they're short-lived. Two, they're pretty goofy. Like, it's not like you're splitting the atom or you're trying to perfect Beethoven's symphony. I mean, you're, you're, it's the same exact thing over and over and over again. Right center, left center, right center, left center. Okay, and then first, now first let's have the, let's have the parents, let's have the grandparents come down first, and then the parents, and we'll seat, and the brides are on this side, and the grooms are on this side, and then we'll have the bridesmaid and the the maid of honor and the whoever, and they all come walking down, the groomsmen and the bridesmen hand in hand. Um, and the bridesmaids who aren't married are, you know, trying to look as close as they can to their best without showing up the bride because that would cause their relationship to dissolve in a blaze of jealousy. Um, and the groomsmen are probably trying to, uh, uh, they're probably trying to overshadow the groom going, hey, look, ladies, if you think he's a good catch, don't miss out on this hunk of meat here because um, it's going once, going twice. Uh, so they're just they're they're kind of awkward. Um, it's the exact same thing in every wedding, at every time, on every place, pretty much. Well, I, I don't know other cultures. Who knows? Other cultures probably you know dance around and slam plates on the floor, and you know who knows. Um, I know other cultures don't follow the Western civilization mode of getting married where everybody walks down the aisle and goes to the left or to the right. Um, so I don't speak for other cultures at this point in time on this particular podcast because I'm completely uninformed. But they're the same. In America, 
they're the exact same thing. Everybody's seen them. Everybody's done them. Um, and let's be honest, they're not that memorable. Like, I, I don't mean to be jaded and, uh, what? You don't mean to be jaded? You're always jaded. I don't mean to be, uh, cynical. <laughs> they're just not that memorable. Like, I, I've been to, uh, I can't even remember all the weddings I've been to. I've probably been to half a dozen weddings in my life. Let's say between a half a dozen and a dozen. And like I had to think for 15 minutes to try to delve up, dig up some details of rehearsal dinners or rehearsal, uh, pre-wedding rehearsal things that I'd been to. Um, I remember the dinner part of my brother-in-law's wedding. I don't remember anything about being at the actual church prior to the dinner. Um, same thing for one of my cousins. I remember the dinner. I don't remember the rehearsal part. Um, yeah, I, I can't. I, it's like I've been in a couple weddings and I don't even remember the rehearsal part. Um, I, I, I remember more of my rehearsal dinner when my wife and I got married. Um, but it, again, it was the same thing. It was, you know, down the center to the right, down the center to the left. Um, don't lock your knees. You don't want to pass out and end up on America's Funniest Home Videos with Bob Saget mocking you, uh, which I guess now would be like ending up on a YouTube video or a fail video or a TikTok clip. But instead of it being a whole segment and Bob Saget interviewing you for $10,000, it would be like a 0.3 second clip before the ADD riddled minds of today's youth uh, edited it and cut to the next fail. So it's just fail, 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 fail. And they sit there and twitch and uh, I don't have any memory because I'm just getting my frontal lobe fired nine million times a day. I insist. Uh, we've been very strict on phones with our kids. Um, didn't let them get them until they got into middle school. Um, and then as they got into high school, you know, tried to loosen up the reins a little bit. Um, but that was an abject failure. Because if left to their own devices, they would literally just buy a week's worth of supply of soda and sit on their bed sipping sugar. Uh, out of a bird feeder scrolling through their phone. Um, so we've had, to, we've had to take the reins back. <laughs> so lock them down with the screen time guards an hour a day um, and then require them to set them on the counter. Uh, they have to check them in in the evenings. Um, Otherwise, they'll stay up till the wee hours texting because for some reason, Apple's lockdown feature does not lock down by default the communication feature through phone calls and texts. And in order to lock down that side of it, you have to sync all of their contacts into the iCloud and then you have to manually go through and select which contacts they can, they can communicate with uh, during off hours. And honestly, that's just too much. It's, uh, I, don't, I don't care, I hate iCloud. And I don't feel like going through and selecting all of that stuff. I just want to lock down the texting, but I can't. So they just have to turn in their phone. Um, and then we use the screen time feature to see, you know, the analytics of, hey, you spent 17 hours a day on your phone last week. Let's try to cut that to 12 this week. Do you think you can do that? Do you think you can do that, buddy? Okay, good. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. It's worse. When they say that these things are worse than, than heroin, um, I believe it. 
I believe it. Anyway, where was I? Uh, phones. Oh, yeah, the fail. Don't lock your knees. You don't want to fall over, pass out, end up getting mocked by Bob Saget. Or Dave Couillet when he guest hosts back in the day. <laughs> Remember that after Full House ended and like everybody was just left dangling in the wind like most famous sitcom people are? Like the sitcom ends, it's America's beloved show, it ends. And then you only know that person. You only know him as Uncle Joy. Like that guy, that guy's doomed. He'll never get another role in his life because he's perpetually, eternally known as Uncle Joy. Same thing with Friends. That thing shuts down. Chandler can't get a role. Ross can't get a role. I think Jennifer Aniston's really the only one who has, has did anything. Um, and I think it was because she was doing stuff during Friends. Like I think she was in a handful of movies during Friends. And she kind of, I think of all the people she kind of saw like, hey, there's got to be a career after the sitcom's over because the sitcom uh, career death rate after the sitcom ends is pretty bad. So let me start positioning and angling and, and maneuvering in order to keep some roles going after this thing's over because I don't want to be perpetually known as Rachel. Um, anyway, so Dave Couillet, after, after Full House ended, uh, like everybody just fell off the face of the earth. There was nothing. Like little Stephanie turned into a drug addict. Uh, I guess the Olsen twins parlayed that thing into like a hundred million plus dollar enterprise of making cheesy twin movies like crime capers and stuff for four-year-olds. Uh, I think that's what it was. Um, yeah, but Bob Saget, I think was the only one. He instantly went into America's Funniest Home Videos. And if memory serves me right, he was already doing America's Funniest Home Videos, videos during Full House. Uh, but after the show ended, I remember Dave Couillet, Uncle Joy showing up. Hey, guest host, thanks for throwing me a bone, Mr. Saget, because I got nothing. I can't even get booked at the casinos on the northern New Mexican Indian casino reservations, so um, I, I need some help. But uh, anyway, that's neither here nor there, as they say. <laughs> so rehearsals, wedding rehearsals, they're, they're, everybody does them. Um, they're not memorable. And they're, they look, they're, they're cookie cutter. They're the exact same thing. So for those reasons, I don't think it is a good example for this analogy of a rehearsal for our lives being a rehearsal for heaven. Because our lives shouldn't be cookie cutters. We have different talents, different abilities, different interests, different circles of influence, different mental faculties, different uh, things we've studied, different talents, different weaknesses, strengths, etc., etc. So we shouldn't look to the wedding example and say, oh, we should all go down the center to the right or down the center to the left, right center, left center. Oh, hey, hoo-ha. No, it's too too robotic, too cookie cutter, too homogenized. Homogenous? Homogenized, homogenous. One of those two words. It's too the same. <laughs> Um, so the second rehearsal, if we go to the other extreme, uh, you've got the rehearsal of like world-class performances. So think of the San Francisco Ballet or the New York Metropolitan Opera or a show on Broadway, um, some, some professional performance 
that requires your entire dedication. I mean, literally from the time, if you want to like become a concert violinist, um, you really have to start when you're four years old and play 10, 12 hours a day. And if you don't burn out by the time you're eight, you have to double down and play even more. And if you don't burn out by the time you're 12, you get shipped off to some elite orchestra string school and you have to play 18 hours a day. A little bit of this is exaggerated, but not really as far as having to start very, very young um, and blocking out all other interests and all other, uh, they would call them distractions in order to succeed at being able to hit, you know, 269 notes a second um, as your fingers literally like create smoke on the strings because they're moving so fast. Uh, and if you, if you want to be impressed, go, you know, obviously go to YouTube and search for talented concert violinists and it's, it's mind boggling how good they are. Like the speed, the accuracy, um, not just the coordination of separating, like right, right now, stop what you're doing. If you're not driving, I mean, if you're at a red light or your house, try to pat your head and rub your tummy and it'll probably take you half a second, second and a half to get the rhythm down because you're like, when you start, you're like, Oh, I'm scratching my belly button. Whoops. Um, so, and then try to think, then go watch that concert violinist. And it's amazing. They, their, their, their left hand on the strings is going a million miles an hour and their right hand and arm is doing a different movement. Um, and it comes out just being just amazing. It's beautiful. It, it sends chills down your spine. Um, some of those songs might even well up some tears in your eyes. Uh, and you just sit there and you're like, oh my gosh, that is, that's crazy. Crazy good. They're a uh, violin player. Um, and you go, well, that's got to be the rehearsal for heaven because heaven's going to be perfect. And it requires, you know, not loving the world, um, blocking out distractions, yada, yada. Um, I'm going to argue that I don't think even that is the correct framework for this rehearsal um, for a couple of reasons. One, I think it is too exclusive. Um, the scripture says, be in the world, not of the world. Um so there's clearly an element of remaining engaged in civilization, in society. I mean, and if you, if you question that, just look at some of the lunatics that have moved out and created themselves these communes or these compounds or these cults. And that's always what we reference them with. We don't say, oh, look at that, you know, loving Christian over there. We go, ooh, look at that loony bins who, you know, carved out 50 acres and put up electric fences and stockpiled weapons. Like you go, okay, maybe he's, maybe he's carving out a little bit too much isolation there. Um, so I think from that standpoint, it's not very real, realistic as it comes, as it relates to being a Christian in the world, because Christians are, we work. If a man doesn't work, a man doesn't eat. Um, we are to engage in society, engage in the culture, be a light unto the world's salt uh, etc. So I don't think, um, it, I think it's, that's more the equivalent of, of becoming a monk or a nun. Um, and not that I'm, well, that's a whole nother topic, but we'll just say that that's probably the equivalent. Like you just disappear, you go and you leave society and you go behind closed doors and that's all you do. So I think for that reason, 
um, high level performance art, uh, whether it's ballet or violin or those things are not the best analogy for our lives being a rehearsal for heaven. The second reason I don't think that's the best analogy is because once you have perfected whatever your discipline is, and it comes to the time to actually perform for audiences, you are the person who receives all the glory. And that's clearly uh, antithetical to the idea of the scripture saying, not unto us, not unto us, O Lord, but unto you be the glory. So, you know, you, you sit there and you, you know, light up the violin strings and there's smoke coming off of them and you're playing at a frenzied pace and you hit that final note with your hair flipping back all dramatically right as the conductor puts down his sticks, you know, to time it and the drums, boom, and everybody, rah, you know, they stand up out of their seat in their tuxedos and, you know, caviar dripping off their chin and they are clapping and cheering and bravo, bravo, whoa. Um, that's clearly not the sentiment of what it means to be a Christ follower. We're not supposed to um, perform, so to speak, our acts of service before men so that they can stand up in their $5,000 tuxes and give us a standing ovation. Um, sadly, I think that's what a lot of modern pastors want. <laughs> <I've>, <laughs> I have completed my four-point alliterated sermon, stand up and bask in my glory. Standing ovation, I demanded. Um, they probably go back and weep behind the stage in the green room. They didn't call for an encore. Whatever shall I do? Um, and then they probably go back and they write into their covenant agreements that anybody who doesn't give them a standing ovation is excommunicated. <laughs> they assign ushers. Uh... Go tase that guy because he, he didn't give me the proper applause at the right moment. He didn't scream amen loud enough. And somehow, well, we can clearly see what my shortcomings are. Um, because this thing continually goes back to mocking pastors. <laughs> but no, that, the, the scripture clearly says, Not unto us, not unto us, O Lord, but unto your name be the glory. So I think for that reason, um, the professional performance rehearsal isn't a good analogy either. So where does that leave us? Um, there's only two other rehearsals that I can think of that I've experienced or been a part of, and they both relate to middle school performances. And you go, what? You're calling for Christian mediocrity. Well, hear me out first, critic. Um, so the first one... The first one that I've witnessed in middle school terms is the middle school play. And first off, just out of the gate, is there anything more cringy than a middle school play? Like you've got guys with full-on beards, you know, with voices that sound like Dikembe Mutombo trying to eke out lines in Romeo and Juliet. And then you've got, you know, underdeveloped sixth graders who sound like... Minnie Mouse or Mickey Mouse, you know, delivering the opposing dialogue. And it's like, thou shalt not do that, Romeo. What are you talking about? I'm brave. And you're like, oh, geez. I mean, is that guy really in eighth grade? Because he looks like he should be like 24 um, working in a coal mine. But uh, so, yeah, there. I don't, <laughs> personally, 
Um, in my experience, um, I have not. You 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 would have to convince me pretty hard that there's something more cringy uh, than a middle school play. Hey, look at that! Our dog's awake. Our our alarm system is going off. Hey, alarm system. Everything's okay. It's just it's just another human being. You know, you wonder you wonder if um, you wonder if the dog picks up traits from the owner. Like, I wonder if her barking at strangers is in, has anything to do with my ownership of her. Oh no. Um, my wife did say that I have an overprotective, uh, over overdeveloped sense of protectiveness. Which, hey, I'll I'll roll with that. I will protect those that I love. From charlatans. She just freaks out anytime. Um, we're currently in temp housing awaiting to... We relocated. I think I mentioned that in the last podcast. Um, we relocated, so we're, we're waiting to move into our more permanent house at the end of the month. Um, and anytime... We're at this apartment complex, and anytime she, she sees a shadow walk by on the sidewalk she loses her business or if she hears the guy above us make like any creak on the on the second story she goes into full-on Cujo mode um so yeah I don't think there's anything more cringy than a middle school play uh and then you know you've always got the very charismatic flamboyant person who you know is going to be the drama king in high school um or the drama the thespian you know you can always pinpoint the future thespians because they come out and they perform completely over the top. Like they take whatever, you know, common decency would say is the max capacity for flamboyance and they just blow it out like 400% over. Um, way too much bravado, way too much confidence, way too much braggadociousness and manufactured swagger. And it ends up being like reverse cringy because you're like, whoa, dial it back there a little bit, psycho. Um, Anyway, so I, I don't know if that's the right <laughs> frame either because it's just a hackneyed, butchered, just mess of a real performance. So you're like, ugh, I don't ever want to watch Romeo and Juliet again because that just made me feel icky on the inside. Um, or I remember our kids' middle school, they, they redid Shrek, and I was like, oh, good Lord, I, I don't... They, they took a perfectly fine movie that I actually really liked. Mike Myers was great. Cameron Diaz was great. Eddie Murphy was great. And I don't know what they did to that thing, but it was like the backwoods deliverance version of Shrek. Like, I don't know about that. And a little bit of, little bit of DNA mutation going on there. I don't, I don't think I want a part of that thing. Um, oh, you're talking about things that are not appropriate. Look, I'm just trying to capture the sentiment and forgive me for not having the appropriate vocabulary to do that sometimes. Apologies. The worst part about this podcast is that I forgot to bring the French press in, so I'm down to like one inch left of coffee. So either this thing's cutting short, um, or I might just have to walk out and get the French press. So I don't think it's the the middle school play either. I think the best analogy that I can come up with for a rehearsal that would apply to our lives as a Christian in a rehearsal sense for heaven is the elementary school violin concert. <laughs> and you go, I, I, my ears are already bleeding. 
They're not playing the violin. They're murdering a cow uh, slowly, not with a professional butcher shop 12-inch nail to the skull. Um, if you ever want to consider, if you ever want to feel for the animal rights people, holy cow, watch an animal slaughter butcher house video on YouTube. Jeez Louise. Talk about just systematic uh, butchery. Gross. Maybe don't do it. If you're, if you're squeamish, don't do it. Um, so yeah, uh, the, the K through fifth, there's the French press. I'm walking around the apartment. I've lived here for two months and I still can't find my way out of my bedroom. There's too many doors. Uh, French press. Hooray. Hooray. Um, I'm excited because the new house we're moving into actually have a dedicated home office space. Um, so I think what I'm going to do, watch, I'm going to say it now and then I won't follow through with it and everybody will be like, oh, well, we expected that because you podcast once every four years. Um, but I want to set up, uh, a home broadcasting studio and I've had a couple requests to do, um, a weekly live stream of the podcast. So kind of like record it in audio version for posterity's sake, but also, um, where am I going to set this French press? You know what? You're going to go on top of the Edison biography, um, because I'm not very impressed. Oh, yeah, it's fine. You'll have a little watermark on you. I don't care. It'll add some character to it for future generations. Um, not really impressed with Edison. Pretty terrible person. Um, sure, he invented electricity, but is that enough to overlook his other shortcomings? <laughs> Maybe he didn't, invent, he didn't invent electricity, he invented a light bulb. I don't know. It's confusing. The guy's writing it backwards. He's starting when he's 100 years old and then going back to his youth. It's the most convoluted weird format for a biography ever. Um, so I'm slowly plodding through it. Uh, anyway, so I have a couple of requests to do a live, um, like video stream while recording the audio. So now that I, now that I'll have a dedicated space, I might attempt that idea. It might be kind of fun. Um, and then you can see my lovely Ember mug instead of just hearing about it. See, now there's the downside of letting the, the coffee go to the half-inch line is that the French press now is too cold. So now the cup is lukewarm, so now I need to let it sit on the charging coaster for probably three or four minutes to get it heated back up to the 146 degrees. Bad timing, bad planning there, Muth. Bad, bad planning. Shame on you. Go run some laps. Uh, so the K-5 through violin concert, I don't know if you've had the privilege of experiencing this, but at our kids' elementary school... Uh, part of their uh, requirement for going through elementary school was that they were required to do violin from K through fifth. And so they did this program called the Suzuki program. And it's, I guess, it's a style or a method of teaching violin to youngsters. And so they start with, they start them in K, uh, kindergarten, and they just have them learn like four notes. Boop, 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 boop. Boop, 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 boop. Sounds like Pong on the Atari or Breakthrough. That was a, that was a game that was pretty fun. Uh, and then when they get into the first grade, they teach them Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. And then they get into second grade and they teach them Hot Cross Buns. And then they get into third grade and, they, and on and on it goes until they get up to fifth grade and they can, you know, play a song that sounds semi non like murdery. Uh, semi-non-psycho shower scene. 
Uh, but you go, well, why is that a rehearsal for heaven? Because that just is, is a disaster and it sounds terrible. Are you advocating that our lives as Christians should look and sound uh, we, we should, other people should be repulsed at our living as a Christian? Oh, no. No, no. That's not a, at all what I'm saying. And you go, well, then what are you saying? Well, you have to understand that but the other thing is this violin teacher, she's like a saint. Her patience levels are off the charts. Um, just like I've been, I've been using Alex Hanold as an example lately. So Alex Hanold, they did a brain scan and they said that he has an underdeveloped uh, sense of fear in his brain, like the part of the brain that tells people to be afraid, like when they ran him through tests, like that part of his brain was essentially dead, like it just didn't fire. Um, well, I think whatever the the equivalent for patience would be, um, or for like being annoyed at, at just a cacophony of just violin string murdering sounds day after day after day, that violin teacher, she must have had that same part of her brain um, that was just dead to the sound of of just horror. I mean, awful. Like you'd walk into a practice after school and you'd be like, oh, where's my earplugs? I'm going to literally start bleeding out of my eyeballs. Not my ears. Like I'm going to start bleeding out of my eyes because this is rough. Um, so anyway, so you go, well, still, you're, you're saying that our lives should be a cacophony of, of just discordant nonsense that's hard to listen to? No. So they do that for the entire year, okay? They start in August, and then here comes Christmas break, and they show up to the high school auditorium, and they have 350 K through 5 people all centered, all seated on in front of the stage and up on the stage. K, first, second, third are down on the floor in front of the stage in like the orchestra pit. And then fourth and fifth are up on the stage. And they all come together for the first time ever and they put on an hour-long concert. And you go, oh man, that's got to be brutal. Yeah, yeah, it is brutal. Except for the fact, and here's the kicker, this is why I think this is the best analogy, except for the fact that the violin teacher has the understanding and the wherewithal and the foresight to give the sound booth technician a CD. I'm presuming it's a CD. I mean, it is a public high school. Maybe it's an eight track or a cassette tape. I have no idea where their budget's at in this day and age. I'm presuming it's a CD. Gives him a recording of all the songs they're going to play performed by professional musicians. And then she tells that sound technician, all right, we're going to cue this up. And before each song, I'm going to hit the piano keys to tell the kids, hey, this is going to start. So dun, dun, dun. And then the kids can start playing. But it's timed perfectly with the professional musicians playing over the kids at like a 50% volume. So instead of just hearing a discordant butchering of Twinkle Twinkle Little Star, um, some kids playing too quick, some kids playing too slow, some kids standing there with their bow up in the air poking the, their next door neighbor in the eye while they're picking their nose, um, some kids playing the air because they're too afraid to make a mistake, um, some kids playing the entirely wrong song, you go, okay. I hear the professional musicians overlaid on top of this butcher job and I can actually sit through this for an hour 
because it's not causing me to go jump out of a window. Um, so I think somewhere in there is probably a proper perspective on our life, our lives being a rehearsal for heaven. Because for the most part, most of these kids try really hard. I mean, I know our kids did. They would come home and they would practice Twinkle Twinkle Little Star after school, day after day, after day after day, grade after grade, sibling after sibling. Deep breath, Brandon, deep breath. Good memories. <laughs> so our first one, K, or actually he started in first grade. He didn't start in K because we moved um, during the first grade year. So first, second, third, fourth, fifth, five. I really had to count on my fingers how many years that was. Yeah, I think it's because, you know, when you count, you're like, whatever. I, I know why I did it because there's always seems to be an extra day that gets kicked into there. Okay, maybe I don't know why I counted. I need more coffee. I literally just counted on my fingers first through fifth to make sure that there were five years in there. <laughs> and that's why you tune into this here podcast for my amazing world-class mathematical skills. So five years with our first one, six years with our second one because he did start in kindergarten. So that's 11, six more, six more, 12. 12 plus 11 is 23. So 23 years combined of Twinkle Twinkle Little Star, Hot Cross Buns, um, Old MacDonald. Wow, okay, yeah, that's a lot of violin getting played. Um, whew. So you, hold on, I'm recovering. I'm recovering a little PS, PTSD right there. Um, so they... they so most of the kids try hard. Most of the kids do their best effort. They really do give it their best effort. They, they try hard at school, in after-school practices with their grade. They come home and they put in the extra work afterwards. Um, a couple of our kids watched YouTube videos on how to improve their technique. Um, so most of the kids try hard. Which I th so, so what I'm getting at is there's an element of sincerity. I think most Christians, there's an element of sincerity. Like, hey, I want to please the Lord. I want to be a positive influence. I want to be salt and light. Um, I want to display the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Um, I think most Christians are have, have an element of sincerity in wanting to, to honor and please the Lord. Just like those kids have an element of sincerity in wanting to honor and please the Lord. Or, or in wanting to um, put forth their best effort to perform, you know, the best they can. Um, at the same time, those kids are realists. They know that they kind of stink. So they're, you know, there might be one or two kids every year in the fifth grade level that are confident enough to attempt a solo. And they're typically the ones that are getting private lessons after school and they're foregoing other activities like sports to practice with her tutor on a weekend, that kind of stuff. Um, but for the most part, every other kid in there, out of the 350, 348 of them, kind of know that their shortcomings. They kind of know like, oh man, I, I have not yet attained to the level at which I want to attain. I am inferior. I'm aiming for this goal, but my performance is inferior. And I, again, think that's very similar to the Christian 
Paul says, I have not yet attained, but I press on. So there's an element of humility. There's an element of uh, self-deprecation in the sense of not boasting. I mean, if any man boasts, thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. Um, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I think there's an element in Christians, not only of sincerity, but also of realism of, wow, I am not perfect. I do fail. I am the chief of sinners, uh, you know, and so there's an element of, of maybe a little bit of shyness, maybe a little bit of apprehension that, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not there yet. And, and I think that's healthy and I think that's right. And I think that's biblically sound. Um, and then the third thing why I think that this particular K through five violin performance is probably the best analogy for a rehearsal as in as it relates to our lives being a rehearsal for hev- for heaven is that the violin instructor and teacher and conductor has the wisdom and foresight to give the sound booth guy the finished perfect perfected version of all of these songs and says hey play these at 50% volume over these kids so that it does bring out the best of them um and people hear the actual notes that the kids are trying to kind of dilute and mess up a little bit so that the ear, the hearer in the audience, their ear hears the optimal notes. They hear the goal being played, but it's intermixed with um, kind of the sincere unconfident sort of second guessing, you know, realization of oh, we're all we're really not all that great. And you go, well, what is that? What's that analogy? Well, duh, it's Christ's finished work on the cross. And so yes, we're sincere. We're a little bit shy. We understand that, we're, that we have not yet attained. But yet Christ's finished work comes and kind of lays over top of all of the things that we do. And hopefully, it amplifies our life. Christ's finished work amplifies our life. It it kind of drowns out our failures. It minimizes those failures. It amplifies and magnifies uh, the things that are more Christ-like. And those two together create a life that doesn't cause people's ears to bleed. Um, so I think that's the best analogy as I've thought about this. Um, so something I'd consider, uh, I'd encourage you to ponder uh, and think about this week is, you know, viewing your life as a rehearsal for heaven. And th- the best way to, to look at that, I think, is through, you know, this analogy um, of this K through five performance, where the perfect expert level orchestra is being played over top of our sincere kind of shy uh, attempts at emulating the perfect orchestra, which would be Christ. Um, So if you're in the first camp, you know, if you're in that camp of, uh, you know, if if you're in some of those previous camps, you know, you're you're thinking, oh, I'm supposed to be the world-class musician where everybody stands up and gives me applause and screams bravo. I'd really recommend you move away from that one. I, I think that as I've been around the church for going on 25 years now, 
that seems to be the the analogy that we get most tripped up in and it's because pastors promote that one they they promote an ideology they promote a goal that says we're all supposed to be world class famous christians and i just don't think that's biblically sound because it's not unto us not unto us o lord but unto you be the glory so my hunch, my guess would be that if you're struggling with any of these, it's probably that one. It's probably the expectation that you're supposed to be. You're, you're probably berating yourself going, oh, I should be on Broadway at this point in my Christian life. I should be a famous Christian at this point in my life. I should be the gleaming, shining, famous example of what it means to be a Christ follower. And I'm, I just want you to... I, I, you're, I want you to discard of that goal because I don't think that that is that that's not the goal because it's pharisaical. I mean just look at the scripture, the widow's might. She gives the widow's might gives her might and it's accepted and she does it quietly and secretly. Um and then, you know, the Pharisee parades through the street, oh, you know, peeling off dollar bills like Floyd Mayweather in an MTV video going, yeah, yeah, look at me, woohoo. Um, so yeah, your Christian life, I think you. I think the, the, the sooner you can accept that you are somewhere between a K through fifth grade level of violin player um, butchering songs to one degree or another while giving your best effort with sincerity, um, trust, and at the end of the day, when that concert starts, trusting that, oh man, praise God that I've got the expert orchestra behind me to drown out my shortcomings. Um, I think that's somewhere near uh, how we should be living as Christians. So that's my contribution for this week. Uh, mull it over, ponder it. Hopefully your soul benefits from those concepts. And go get yourself an ember mug. You will not regret it. Although, be forewarned, they are stinking expensive. A single mug is $99. How can a Christian podcaster afford a $99 mug? Um, well, this isn't my job. Um, I, have other, I have other employment, which is part of the free market capitalistic system, um, which I love. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, they're, they're, they're quite pricey. So you might be out of your budget. And if so, then don't do it. Um, but if, if you're going to spend a hundred bucks on, on Christian books this year, you know, maybe, maybe take a break from that and spend a hundred bucks on a mug and it'll help fuel your Bible time. Adios people. Have a wonderful day. See ya.